Hello, I'm Philippe de Montebello, and it is my immense pleasure to welcome you once more to the picture Conversations with Aquavella Galleries. For this episode of the Picture Podcast, we'll hear a conversation between Wayne Thibault and Michael Thomas, moderated by myself and recorded live at Aquavella Galleries in New York. Wayne, Michael, and I spoke on the occasion of Wayne's third solo exhibition in the gallery. It is entitled Wayne Thibault Mountains, 1965-2019, and it features 33 works by this most distinguished American painter. It also happened to be on the eve of Wayne's 99th birthday. So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're delighted to be here at Aquavella Gallery and in the presence of a major American painter, I should say a major painter, and I'm delighted to be able to say a painter and not simply an artist because ah. what you produce is paintings. Uh, I am only the moderator. You came to hear Wayne Thibault, to a certain degree uh, Michael Thomas. Uh, <laughs> Michael Thomas and I are the two youngsters in our early 80s. Octogenarian whippersnappers. However, uh, this gentleman is about to turn 99. As you can see in looking at the dates of the pictures in the show, he's still very active as a painter. He's still very active as a teacher. And if I'm not mistaken, you still play tennis. Oh, pretty close. <laughs> My game now is insulting the tennis game. I was referring to the game, not, this was not a judgmental uh, oh. comment. <laughs> Thank the very fact that you can hold a racket, be on a court, and hit a ball across a net, I don't care how you hit it. Um, Michael and I, um, I've known each other since 1963. We played uh, musical chairs at the Metropolitan. He left his position as, uh, in the in the, as a curator of European paintings as I came and sat at his desk and he went back to Lehman Brothers. He did much better than I did. And uh, don't, don't we, be so sure. Don't be so sure, all right. We uh, uh, are here essentially uh, to talk about uh, Wayne Thibault and his art. Michael Thomas wrote a very candid, very interesting introduction in the catalogue in which uh, he confesses from the start that he was not always taken uh, by the art of Wayne Thibault, but when he saw um, the, the group of uh, mountains, which I won't call a series because they cover more than uh, half a century uh, together, um, he changed his mind, and I'm going to ask him to tell us a little bit as soon as he has a microphone uh, what led to that and what led you also uh, to refer to Wayne Thibault in a sense as a school uh, unto itself. Well, I'm, I'm not a Wayne Thibault expert, but I am a, now a major Wayne Thibault fan. About a hundred years ago when I was in the seventh grade. It was back in the years when we had to memorize poetry. And I was made to memorize Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. 
And the last line of that, you may recall, is truth is beauty, beauty, truth, and you on earth, that's all you need to know. Well, at the age of 13, I had absolutely no idea what that meant. Now, 70 years later, thanks to Wayne Tebow, I do. I think what has absolutely turned me on and what is so evident on the walls and in these rooms and these galleries is something we don't talk about very much these days when we're talking about art, and that is beauty. I think these pictures are very beautiful. And I'm old enough, naive enough, whatever enough, to have that really count for a great deal. And the more I looked at these pictures of Wayne's, the more seduced I was. There's really no other word for it. I thought they were profound. I thought the facture, the, the surface, uh, which is a phrase we used to be able to use, um, was wonderful. I think the color sense is astonishing. Uh, and I think these pictures shown as a group, uh, in, my, in my essay, and I'll just finish this quickly, I thought of them as, the, as comparable to the Etude of Chopin or um, Debussy, or and, and actually more, I've thought of it since, you know, we have what Philippe would well know as the Esprit de l'Escalier, when you remember what you should have told the Russian ambassador. And that is the years of pilgrimage by Franz Liszt. It's, they're wonderful pieces of themselves and of as a, an ensemble. They are totally alluring. End of report. How many painters in the room? Wouldn't you love to have a review like that? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. When uh, one of the things that Michael said was truth is beauty, I think he was quoting someone, but nevertheless, truth is beauty. I don't know north, the north of California. To what degree did you, in painting those mountains over a period of 60 years, like Cezanne, take full possession of a mountain landscape. He took full possession of the Mont Saint-Victoire. Are there really mountains that look like this in Northern California, or to a certain degree you are inventing? I would probably say they feel more like that rather than look like that. Cezanne was always looking carefully and with a sense of how to get this thing organized. That's why he loved Poussin and uh, other heroes. And that formal aspect is very important to me. I'm a very kind of old-fashioned painter. I'm certainly traditional. I, I have trouble with uh, the modernist uh, ethos. So it's a, a, a world for me based 
certainly on art history. And that uses of art history is what, for me at least, is such a thrill to be however tiny you are connected to art history. One of the great communities of excellence. It's also a very, painting for me at least, is very cumulative and collaborative. When you're painting, or what I should say when I'm painting, there are those tiny little issuance of attachment to paintings that you've loved, paintings which have meant something to you. Just the flick of a certain brush or the little planometric things in Koro, which you then feel an immediate physical and emotional attachment to. So that's essentially the way I work. I love going to museums. I'm a teacher, but my education was not in art school. It was in commercial art, design. So that uh, I'm an odd, mixed person. I work almost every day. And uh, I think that's because I was in commercial art where you go to work and you do something. I have a feeling, this is very presumptuous, but I have a feeling that most of the great world's art is more like commercial art. You would call Titian down and say, well, Titian, I'd like to have uh, a painting to go with my drapes. <laughs> and I want it by uh, Thursday on August the 4th. Or uh, a great story about Michelangelo, who's called down by the Pope. Pope says, uh, Michelangelo, I know exactly what I want. Uh, we're doing this chapel of mine, and I'd like to have a, a great series of murals uh, and representing our world, Libyan symbols and uh, great traditions of the classical traditions. On, on the ceiling, I'd like to have something like uh, maybe bringing uh, Adam to life or something. Oh, I might touch him or something. So, and, and then on the ceiling, I want uh, the whole Judeo-Christian tradition. <laughs> and Michelangelo says, well, yes, what color? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, this, uh, <clears throat> the modernist sensibility where the, as I understand it, the authority rests with the individual for me, that uh, miraculous tradition of masterworks 
uh, is the source for both finding out things, using certain kind of uh, conventions. Uh, I have felt, looking at Wayne's work, that the best thing he ever did was to get out of New York after he came here, what, 1956, 57. New York is filled with a lot of people who look at pictures with their mouth as much as with their eyes. And he doesn't strike me, and his work doesn't look like that. Um, I think that we've discussed this. You know, when he was 16 years old, He went to work at Disney in Burbank. And as I pointed out in my essay, that was just when Walt Disney was starting to make Snow White, which was the first ever full-length animated feature film. And to be 17 or 16, as Wayne was then, and a trained commercial artist and an aspiring cartoonist, And to be on that lot with the excitement that must have been percolating, you probably remember that with a certain affection. Yes, we were trying to get a union. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't like unions, Roy and Walt. I'm unfortunately not a Disney fan anymore. Right. But it was a great opportunity. He offered opportunities to young people you, you copied his characters, Mickey Mouse and Goofy. Then you presented those, and if you passed that test, then you were on probation as a, what they call an in-betweener. Uh, that's the lowest life of work because you've, your animator fills in, I mean, you get the position of Mickey Mouse here and here where he's heading for the golf course and you draw all of those 24 per second things to get him there. And that's what in betweening. But it was, as Michael suggests, it was terrific. I I loved it. And uh, particularly all the other animators, they were so terrific about what they could do, how they could manage and They would look in the mirror and make themselves from their image into Donald Duck or Goofy or Yeah, I think you must realize that for the three old men sitting up here, the word Disney was thought of in terms of animation. If you ask younger people today what Disney means, they think about the theme park (laughs) in Anaheim or Orlando. But In those days, I remember seeing Snow White for the first time. And of course, down the road, uh, I maintain this has had some lingering effect on on Wayne. Tex Avery and Chuck Jones and those guys were setting up the famed Warner Studio, where, as I say, Wiley Coyote haplessly and eternally pursues the Roadrunner a pursuit which I might tell you I find infinitely more satisfying than Ahab chasing the white whale. 
Well, uh, you too have just spoken about Disney, about animation. Uh, where does uh, motion movement fit into your work? Because there is a, a, a certain dynamism and excitement about uh, your brushwork that one could almost call uh, a sense of movement, a sense of, sense of action, even though there is stillness in the subject. A very good point, since painting obviously is a little flat surface of some kind, doesn't move, doesn't speak, has no sound, and uh, as he suggests, you have to figure out a way, if you can, to make it feel alive. And that's a real trick. So movement can only be in some way metaphorical, but with a good focus on formal relationships. You can do the most amazing kind of felt experience. You use your body empathically to enter the painting in order for you to feel those sensations of movement or feelings of thrusts or imbalance, uh, tension, because it's all metaphorical and all fictive. That fictional space also has that same characteristic. You can have a kind of interesting simultaneity of absolute stillness and seeming the most busy kind of action. But re always remember that this problem is the thrill that you get from painting. Now, it's a thrill you communicate, obviously, to your students. You teach a great deal. Uh, to what extent in teaching where you uh, instruct students, painters, uh, to solve problems, uh, the techniques, as you say, yourself, you're well grounded in this. To what extent does your own teaching inflect your own art? Do, at, at some point, do you find yourself uh, exercising, practicing, and wanting to better yet another precept that you've taught? Is there a relationship between teaching, which you've done all your life, and painting, which you've done all your life? A very direct influence to the point of teaching became actually my education. In teaching, you, you have to be sure, if you can, that you're talking to the student at whatever level he or she is. If you expect too much, you're only frustrated by the fact that they're not on the same level of achievement that you are. So fashioning a teaching program is extremely difficult. Michael tells a story about when he 
was teaching at Yale early on. Well, in 1958, I found myself teaching a very perplexed class of Yale freshmen. And Wayne had been teaching art history in Sacramento about seven or eight years earlier. Which I didn't know anything about. <clears throat> Neither did I. But our experiences were the same. We kept about seven to eight pages ahead of the students <laughs> until finally I got to the Middle Ages and pulled away from the field. <laughs> and I suspect that for Wayne, the experience was the same. But you taught yourself. You knew nothing about half of the Egypt or ancient Rome, but you learned it alongside of them. Yeah, and you learned to love it, I think. If you think for a minute about your students have come into class of beginning drawing, and you want them as early as possible to sense its challenge, um, this, again, flat surface. You have to get them to believe that a vector, that's a line that goes this way from a flat surface, they have to make a leap to faith and begin to believe that that flat plane can be enlivened by space and all kinds of space. The advantage is it's unscientific. The space can do the extraordinary and superhuman things. And again, art history gives you this, these measurements uh, whether it's Indian miniature painting or whether it's Rembrandt's dark pictures, 80% black or dark, with some glowing. At the other day, I, I looked for about 20 minutes at his hand on the cane and was convinced it was going to come right out of the in a sense, you, you, you're talking about illusionism, the arm that comes through the still life of Cezanne on the uh, slanted plane, and if it's not a picture, all of the fruit are going to tumble into your own space. If, if one looks carefully at your work on the mountains, uh, the works in the last few years are much more cinematographic uh, much more, uh, to, my, to my eye in any event, uh, illusionistic, uh, a sense of depth of, of those roads crossing those canyons. Um, they're not exploiting the flatness of the canvas as you did in the earlier years. Is, is that a misinterpretation of a kind true. of development? Well, I, I think that's true, but the other aspect of that, I think, particularly the later ones, are more abstract. So that, that combination, let's say that picture of the rock with a reflection, that uh, seemed like such a dumb thing to do. Uh, until uh, 
I surprised myself by putting a very straight line along the water. And those are the few moments when you're painting that you're thrilled to death with yourself. It's, it's terrible. But uh, to Philippe's point, those worlds of really beautiful, illusionistic, even trick-of-the-eye paintings, all of those, uh, that range all the way to the, most, the flattest thing you could possibly do. What, who's the flattest painter that you know in terms of regaining a flat surface? Is that possible? Mondrian is a flat painter. I mean, I think that the, that the paintings, that your paintings are indeed more abstract in this series of mountains. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I, I'm not a painter myself, so I'm only guessing, but I'm guessing that sometimes the need to be representational gets in the way of what one wants. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, you hit the ripcord <laughs> and make the painting you want to make. Someone once remarked that the world is full of works of art and not necessarily of artist's intentions. <laughs> and I think that yes, that... Yes, uh, and those devices that have been developed in painting. Uh, what's the origin of the collage? For, for me, it's when you're... You have destroyed the picture plane in some way. So you take a flat piece of paper or card and you almost push it into that paint. And this beautiful thing happens about, ah, there's that picture surface again. This is a joy of Cezanne where that's a continuum for him. These little beautiful little cube, not cubes, but flat little. And you take, you take a trip through space with him. Uh, whether it's a still life or a mountain, he's, he's always doing this. And he's, he has in, in Merleau-Ponty's great expression, always doubting everything. Can I make it a little bit better? A little bit closer. Can the description be a little more adroit? It's thrilling to, uh, if you could come to Bill Acovella's Cezanne watercolor show, for instance, that I've only seen the catalog for. That thing is. Uh, At first, they look like waterfalls, or it's all kind of amorphic. And then there are these little stop signs, and this is the surface. This is a flat plane, and that makes it even more more interesting because it's it's the opposite. You're you're doing both of these things at, at once. I was pleased and privileged to be 
with uh, Bill de Kooning early on. And we were having tea in his studio on 10th Street, I guess it was. And I was trying to... <laughs> Uh, that was when I was trying to bring students to New York uh, to, to tour the galleries and museums. And I was going to ask Bill if he'd let the students come to the studio. Of course, he agreed right away, and then never happened. <laughs> but there was a painting about 20 feet down the, leaning against the wall, or on, I guess on the easel. And I noticed he kept looking at that. He, he, he jumped up, tore out a piece of, uh, I think it was a, a newspaper, and he pushed it into this wet paint upper right-hand corner and said, ah, that's a bad <laughs> uh, So the... Since painting is a sort of secret society, those kinds of things uh, are there for everybody to enjoy and to do. This is why we need it in the school system so desperately. So that this physical, empathic art form can keep us from educating half a man. But the desperation with which we go about trying to convince people hasn't been that effective. So this is an advertisement for art in the public schools. <laughs> Indeed. Well, let me, let me pick up on another aspect of, uh, without disagreeing at all with that notion uh, of something you're saying, and also in what de Kooning did, which is the evolutionary uh, quality or character rather of the act of painting in which you obviously revel is mm. are your pictures ever finished do you ever consider a picture finished you do have a, a, a reputation for revisiting pictures that you've done a long time ago the secret's out you're right <laughs> someone said told me watched another painter said that you're working too long on those damn things Wayne he says, I'm going to hire someone with a mallet to hit you in the back of the head when I think it's right. <laughs> I don't know about a term like finish or a term like complete, but I think Cezanne is always unfinished, but always complete or in the main. He's almost complete from the outset. He'll start, this is going to be a landscape. He's going to have a tree over here and here. This is going to be where the water is. This is the side of the house. So he's got his real estate staked out almost from the beginning. It's extraordinary. Well, your real estate is Olympian. And you've got upstairs uh, Mount Olympus looking a little bit like an Italian uh, hill town with just a few houses at the top. And I looked carefully at all the pictures. There is no human presence. There's a cow, it's not a human, in one picture. 
There is no animate being in any of your pictures. Where, do, where does the, first the gigantism come from? What, what is the metaphor? What are you trying to achieve? And why is there no human presence, even to give scale? Yeah, I prefer a tree, I suppose. But um, you hit a very important thing about scale and the difference between size and scale. Uh, it's, it's a crucial thing. S mountains talk about are such such a subject matter of, of an ending challenge. I mean, think of how we revere mountains and also fear mountains and what mountains can do. They can be explosive and have volcanoes. They can be an ocean or a sea in one period of geologic time and they can be a mountain at another time. How much change occurs fascinates me. And part of the reason for some of uh, the strategies that I use do have to do with the temporariness of mountains. Uh, and also how we blithely cut through mountains with tunnels or roads or we want to see them so we drive all these roads up through the parks. A great attraction, we make a heroic challenge of Mount Everest. Everybody, how many people go and want to climb Mount Everest or carve into it our heroes? Uh, it's such a rich subject matter that uh, it's been treated very, very well by so many other wonderful painters. And that's another, I think, helpful thing to me, because I'd look constantly at the Hudson River School and the, the primitive painting, folk painting, wonderful Japanese and Chinese painting of mountains, an extraordinary legacy of uh, the beauty of mountains. Well, of course, when I was looking at your pictures, Turner kept coming back into my sense of these pictures because I think you and Turner have, for lack of a better phrase, the same metaphysics of mountains. Mountains are extraordinary. I mean, there is nothing in physical nature like them. And I, I kept, you know, I'm not saying you've looked at Turner because he's not an artist you've ever mentioned in any of the yeah. uh, dialogues with you that I've read. But I think it's that sense of verticality, scale, um, the work of the effect of light. It just, it just, I couldn't get away from it. Now I may be nuts, but I mean there you are. <laughs> well, you, you, uh, 
pure painting is a phrase that's been used by Michael, by you. Uh, can I legitimately take comfort in the fact that when you paint your mountains, when you paint the roads that go through them, you're not engaging in an ecological conversation that we're just looking at painting? Or is there, you being Californian, uh, a bit of a political agenda? <laughs> As the painters in the 19th century had, when, uh, when smokestacks, railroads are done by Monet and Pissarro, they are, a, a, they are ruining the, the, the loss of the pure landscape. Is there any of that in, in, your, in your painting? I think so. I think about it. And, um, there's another essay in the, in the catalog, as a matter of fact, about that by uh, Margareta, Margareta Lovell, who did it whole thing about the maps of California, the, the scale, the area, the geological structures. And some of that is calculated to throw you off from some of those there. I wouldn't want uh, to ignore the idea of discomfort and disequilibrium. Uh, I think that's another way when you talked about motion is one of the ways of feeling that you have movement uh, possible in a, in a painting. I just wanted to add this at the end. When, you, when, when, when I look at all of these paintings, the one thing, Wayne, I cannot get away from is the feeling this wonderful artist loves mountains. <laughs> and they're like Shakespeare's sonnets. Mm. There are 50, 60, 80, however many sonnets there are, um, ways of expressing that love. Mm. But in every one of these pictures, love. This is well, the soul. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the choices were based on that from my time in in Utah, in Southern California, mm. in the Sierras, and uh, loving the whole idea of mountains and what they do for us. I don't know what it is, but... They do it. Yeah. There's something about the spirit of, of mountains as well. Well, you certainly capture it. Uh, may I ask if, I, I suspect some of you have questions. I would prefer if they were not commentary, but questions. Uh, keep them short and short enough that uh, people with our memories will be able to sort of repeat, <laughs> repeat them so that... Uh, Could you tell me my name, please? Harry, what was that? Yeah. I think so. Are there, are there among the artists especially? Yes, sir. Can you stand and then project your voice? Hello, I'm not an artist, but I have a question. So thank you very much, a great show. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about your contemporaries, how <clears throat> current art, which you were doing, influences your own art? Is there a friendly competition? Like you talked about the Kooning and Pollock or Michelangelo and Da Vinci. Is there that kind of competition among artists that kind of maybe push you in a certain direction? You kind of peek and see what other people are doing? Does that make sense? I think more communal. 
than competition. I'm sure there is, and you want to best certain things, or you want to have certain things happen, but I think of it as a kind of uh, community. I uh, am influenced mostly by a great deal by fellow painters. I think some of the names of schools indicate that that's been helpful, like the Bay Area Figurative School or the Hudson River School or on and on, the Blue Four. On and on there are usually areas of when painters get together and I think critical interchange is very important. Being able to interrogate work with some care that uh, informs of everybody about how you can do something better or how you can take care with each other. Yes, sir. You talked a lot about plane and dimension and about the, the monumentality of, of mountains and the object, but you didn't talk about chiaroscuros so much when you're discussing these paintings. How much does that affect the way that you paint an image of a mountain? Atmosphere, light, shadow, because um, there's a word you use that I didn't hear I and didn't that he hear, didn't yeah. hear. Chiaroscuros. Oh, chiaroscuro, I'm sorry. Ah. We're all deaf. <laughs> We're all. Chiaroscuro, are you concerned with these issues? Yes and no. Um, one of my uh, early strategies was to uh, not use it at all, to paint very white backgrounds. Chiaroscuro, you start, they usually start with a mid-tone, about 40 or 50%, like those beautiful tobacco washes and so on, uh, so that the work can come out of that. Very plain white surfaces is really a very bad uh, strategy. And I don't know why that's so, but it's a hell of a job to get volume with that in mind. It's one of the reasons for a little colors around edges, trying to make transitions to the white and so on. But a very fascinating challenge. So the chiaroscuro is, is such a great, great long tradition that I just tried to Mostly avoided. <laughs> Hi, uh, thanks so much for coming out to the fair. Some of my favorite uh, paintings of yours are uh, of the desserts, and I'm wondering, uh, perhaps to commemorate your upcoming birthday, if you would tell us what your favorite pastry or dessert is. I was unable to find this information online. <laughs> I'm wondering what your favorite dessert and or pastry is. What is your favorite to eat, not to paint, to eat in terms of pastry? Well, lemon candy. meringue pie. <laughs> have you painted lemon meringue pies? I have. Okay. And eaten them. I was, uh, we, my courtship 
was with Betty Jean, who made wonderful lemon meringue pie. <laughs> you know, if you look at a lemon meringue pie on a plate, <laughs> you have almost a snowdrift yeah. <laughs> and this gorgeous, beautifully cut lemon color. And the desserts were done for that reason. I, I think I did focus on uh, American cakes. The reason being that Viennese cakes are already artwork for me. <laughs> uh, whereas when you go across country in little restaurants, they have the damnest looking food, uh, t terrible looking cakes overdone with. <laughs> so somewhere in between, there's this wonderful, it has to do just with color and design and uh, trying to get it as beautifully organized as you can. Does your and confectionery palette uh, <laughs> end up also in your mountains? Because the palette, in a sense, is also uh, uh, along the same lines. Yes. I That's an honest a answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because it's very obvious. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that your key, your value key, has gotten a lot darker. And some of the mountains almost seem ominous. And I wondered, versus the key, say, of your delta paintings, where the light key is so much lighter. And I wondered, what is the feeling, or what is, what is happening that is pulling you toward that kind of darker key? I, I think she's asking that a lot of the later pictures have a kind of dark mood and dark palette together oh. and is there a change is well, that what's it what's the feeling or the thinking behind that the feeling behind that, that darker toward doing that oh, I as see. opposed to the higher lighter key mm. uh, more intense saturated colors i'm afraid mostly it's about drama trying to make a real dramatic impact maybe fair enough <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> not much of an answer. In the back, Philly. Yes. It's obvious that you've been a, a very generous teacher to, to perhaps a younger generation. And with all due respect to your beautiful, beautiful work, I wonder, as a, as a younger artist, there were uh, people who helped to influence your career or perhaps as a, in, a, in the capacity of a, a mentor. Oh, a mentor. Yes, quite a few. One in particular, his name was Robert Mallory. We were both working for Rexall Drug Company. And uh, I was holding forth at a lunch hour about Cezanne. There's a book called Cezanne's Composition, which I had been reading and 
interested in. So I was <laughs> presumptuously talking about what I knew about Satan. Robert Mallory was listening, took me aside and told me how much, how terrible and how far off the mark I was. <laughs> and ever since, he, he was the one that kept directing me to more reading, more looking, more careful work, more higher standards and so on. And we became great uh, friends. My younger daughter is named after him. We need to clone this man, yeah. uh, which, is not, which is not a f flippant comment on my part. <clears throat> what do you think is your legacy? Have, oh, you, have you formed <laughs> a school? Do you have followers? No, I mean, do you have followers? I hope not. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the furthest thing I want my students to be doing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so there, there was another question here, sir. Just a question on comment on drama. And one thing I really, truly appreciate about your work is, is how powerful your works in different medium are in different scale the intimacy and the drama of your small paintings and works, and then the drama of the larger ones. What, what scale is your preferred scale? Do you have a preferred scale that you like to work in? Do you, have a do you mean scale? what size? Yeah, what, si what size do you yeah. like to work in? Yeah. <laughs> so scale is that a very exquisite thing. Uh, you know the work of Thomas Eakins? and those book pictures, his skulls, what they call his little boats, that he's single rowing. And you look at his orlock, and it's just so right. There's thrilling. Or the little uh, size of the uh, units of the boat. Or, so you think, God, what a realist painter. He's just got such perfect pitch. Scale from God. And then the, right next to him, here's an impressionist painting of a tree. And all these different conventions are also there, but all of them then take a different more difficult idea of getting that whole different series of scales to come together. That's, that's magic, that's a miracle. <laughs> it's like uh, Vermeer, you know, you can't understand how you can use every kind of light there is in one painting. When I've heard it said by many artists that it is much harder to paint a small picture than a very large picture. Would you agree with that? I think it is for me, at least. I don't know how other people... How about some of the artists here? Size. You prefer to work on a larger scale, a smaller scale, a small scale, you 
creating a window, you're creating... There's more of, there's more of a gestural uh, freedom that uh, I think I've been told by many painters I've interviewed in doing a large picture. It's all goddamn hard. It's all about what? It's all hard. All hard. 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 Oh, it's all hard. Difficult. <laughs> Big and small. All right. Yeah. I'm willing to accept that. I would best describe it as happiness, and I agree with the gentleman that said the best thing that happened was you leaving New York, because your work is just happy and joyful and makes everybody feel good. And so I want to thank you for that. She's thanking you for making her feel good and for all the happiness you get through your paintings. Is there anything you regret not doing in the past? Well, I would like to have gone to art school. <laughs> that might have ruined your painting. Right, I'm, I think no, we're going to so. dipped. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I believe, in, I believe in academic training. I think the difficulty, once you make these beautiful academic drawings, you're so bewitched by them, and that's, it's a difficult thing to do, draw a hand correctly and get a proportion right. And so you feel the weight and tension of a figure. That's a very difficult thing to do, almost impossible, maybe. The trouble is, once you do it, there's a tendency to do it and to love it and get great rewards for it. The trick is to try to figure out how to get the hell out of it. And they miss, I think, I wonder how Philippe feels about this. I think they need more poetry and literature and art history and thinking beyond this academic tool idea. To confront your criticism and fewer courses on how to get an agent, how to get a gallery, who you ought to know. These are all subjects now taught at the Yale Art School. Yeah. So yeah. many of the works in the show have multiple dates. Yes. Yeah. speak about the process of reworking the canvas, adding things, taking away, why and how you do that? Thank it's, you. Yes, thank you. That, that's a good question. It's a... First of all, it's not a very good technical thing to do. The restorers and people who care for paintings are not too uh, thrilled when you do that. But there are ways to substantiate pretty much what the painting can contain and keep. It's, for me, one, maybe one of the more difficult things to do. But if you're dissatisfied with it, you see it you see, well, here's, a, here's a psychological question. Why is it that when I finish a painting and feel that it's uh, delivered on what its promise was, when I see it a month or a year 
or two years later, I have to get that damn thing changed. I couldn't see clearly why it was so different from what I see it now. And I, and I haven't been able to find out why that is, but there's something. I, haven't you all had that experience, sure. painters? Yeah. You think it's okay, and then a month later, a week later, a year later? Try writing novels. I was just going to say the same thing. I think writing's just the same. Yeah. Ah, I'm sure. I'm sure. That's why, uh, as I understand this story, that Vuillard and Bonard would go together with little paint boxes to the gallery, and they would look out for the guards <laughs> and then touch it. On. I want to touch up that. You've all been very kind. Thank you so much for coming. Indeed, as Michael says, Wayne has become a school unto himself. And from all of us, thank you for joining us in this episode of The Picture, Conversations with Aquavilla Galleries.